Hello, fantasy fans, and welcome to Swords and Satire, the podcast where we turn low fantasy into high art. I'm your dungeon manager, Jamie Molkel, here with my colorful co-hosts. I'm Chelsea Hollowell, a dragon. Cool. Nobody talks about us. No dragon representation in this world? I know. Very few people even know we exist. They're just always talking about the dragon appropriating the name, the title. He doesn't even have scales. Pathetic. His presence makes people ignore all of the slights to dragon kind and the prejudices against our people. Oh, now I feel sad. <laughs> well, is there perhaps a very powerful dragon called the human to offset that? <laughs> you know, that's a good idea. We'll workshop it. Yeah, good idea. <laughs> but who am I? Yeah, who are you? <laughs> I'm Jack Olander. I'm a, just a little toy that wants to see the world. Oh, that's so nice. That's right. And I succeed. Oh. I succeed. End of story. <laughs> there it is. That's where it ends. You saw the whole world, huh? Yeah. I'm so happy for you. Yes. You know, it's a, it's a pretty big world after all. Because <laughs> I'm very small. That Disney fucker was lying out of his ass when he said it was a small world. Yeah. Well, he was much bigger than I am. I'm just a little little doll. Fair point. So somebody has to carry you. Yeah, it's all like perspective, you know? That's a good point. Yeah. Well, I love that for you. I'm also non-sentient. I mean, that makes sense. Yeah. So how are we hearing your voice? I don't ask questions. The dark weave is tainted with madness. <laughs> <laughs> I've been saying that for years, but nobody wanted to listen. Yeah. Okay, guys, well... <laughs> <laughs> What do we do here on this show? We talk about fantasy, right? Yeah. It's right there on the tin, I guess, or something. <laughs> <laughs> and this week, we are continuing our satire TV discussion of The Wheel of Time, which yeah. is a show. About magic. Kind of, yeah. And oppression. Magical oppression. Yeah. Oppressing magical boys. Oh, it's That's sad. Right. It's, That's really sad. sad. It I'm is very, sad. I'm very sad. It is sad. We're going to talk about that. But before we talk about that, I want to talk about something else. Oh, what's it? I wanna what's it? <laughs> <laughs> I want to talk about all patrons in it. <laughs> well, that sounds cool. What's well going on? <laughs> what are you doing? What you done to me? <laughs> what is this? <laughs> No, I want to talk about our patrons, the people who support Isn't us every month. that what you just said? <laughs> I can't do accents. <laughs> that much is very obvious. <laughs> You're talking about swords and satire, ain't ya? <laughs> you know, we have these patrons. They're really cool. Every month they support our show, and we really appreciate it. And if you want us to appreciate you as much as we appreciate our patrons, you can become a patron. You could, if you wanted to, you could go to patreon.com slash swords and satire and join our community and you could join the cool kids, you know? Yeah. Support your favorite fantasy movie podcasters. The best fantasy movie podcasters. For as little as $2 a month or more, if you want. <laughs> as little or more. <laughs> Bangers and mash. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
Uh, but we won't be beans delivering. on toast. We can't deliver food, though. No. We are legally disallowed from providing food to our listeners. It's true. But you do get other stuff, like voting on movies we watch and cool bonus episodes. All right. Well, today we're going to talk about The Wheel of Time, Episode 4, The Dragon Reborn. Before we talk about this episode, we should probably summarize it for those of you who don't remember what happens, because I know you all have watched this series and taken it all in, or maybe you're watching along with us. Either way, let's do our summary. <laughs> so in this episode, the Ace Sedai have Loghain under arrest and he's under cave arrest yeah he's imprisoned in kind of a magical cage i think yeah it seems like it. it's very elaborate we were noting during the episode how they put a lot of time crafting a, a pretty nice looking cage yeah and our characters a gilded cage <laughs> moraine lan and nynaeve um, are uh, with all the other Ace Sedai and their warders. We found out finally that Lan and other warriors like him who protect the Ace Sedai are called their warders. Yeah, they're drinking warders. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're because we have a scene of them drinking later and hanging out and like partying. Yeah. Yes. Your pronunciation of Nynaeve was like a bludgeoning blow. <laughs> Just... You mean Nenev? Yeah. That's what Leandrin calls her. Yeah, but she even says the thing like, oh, I'm sorry if I'm butchering your name. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, maybe try a little bit harder. So there are, like, different factions of Ace Sedai that we find out about. <laughs> I, was, I was just really imagining her trying harder. Or, like, doing the thing where she's just like, none, and then you, like, pretend cough into your fist, right. but then it just turns into, like, her fucking up her throat and then just throwing up all over Nanev. <laughs> oh, God. No, but in this episode, Matt's the one who throws up. So that's that's a different thing. That's right. We'll get to that later. So all the different factions of Ace Sedai, like, fulfill different roles. And we were trying to figure that out. And we only caught a few of them. Uh, we can probably talk about that later. But uh, it's all based on what color you wear. Yeah. So they create a rainbow together. But Oh, that's cool. Yeah. But um, they're kind of scary people. So what do you think the Indigo Ace and I are like? I don't think they have one. <laughs> they master invisibility because you haven't seen one. Ooh, good call. Yeah. yeah. It's the way orcs work in 40k. <laughs> so Purple orcs have invisibility because you, no one has ever seen one. <laughs> That's pretty we funny. get to learn a little bit about these intricacies of the Ace and I and their order. And we get to learn that they fuck in their warders. I mean, we already knew that because we saw Moraine but, and Lan having a intimate co-worker bath. Well, yeah, but now they're explicit about it. And so they're all kind of like in these open relationships. They're like co-workers with benefits. And um, some of them even have multiple warders. Very cool. Mm-hmm. We saw one polycule. That was my favorite Ace and I that we've met so far. Yeah, the warders were... By which I mean that was the only Ace and I we've met who I like. So the Ace and <laughs> I are all... True. Women. 
are female-bodied, and the warders are all male-bodied. Very defined gender roles in this world. Yeah. So the Ace Sedai, who had two warders in this polycule, was Alana. She was of the green faction. We were trying to figure out what that meant. I think they were like... They're the, uh, they're, they were green, which is the color of money. In America. God. <laughs> she seemed to imply... There must be the accountants. I don't know. She seemed to imply, like, that faction was more open about how many warders you could have. And that's one Good of, for them. That's one of the reasons why she joined them. <laughs> Green is the color of the sexually liberated branch of I the Aes Sedai. I guess so. That's as far as I could get. So just think about that in the context of becoming an Aes Sedai. They're like, okay, like, what's your whole deal? Yeah. <laughs> It's like, oh, we're like, you know, we're red. We're the warrior faction or or the justice faction or whatever. Or we're blue. We're the charismatic spies. We're green. We fuck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I want to join the green faction. Why does everyone always want to join the green faction? <laughs> <laughs> it's like psychology and the social sciences. <laughs> um. <laughs> everyone fucks? <laughs> it's like the most bloated one. Besides communications, I guess. Hear that, psychologists? You're bloating. <laughs> Your field is bloated. Yes. <laughs> After a big enough dinner, my field is bloated, too. Hey! <laughs> so, it's fun to see the warders kind of joking around and chilling together around the fire. And we get to see Maxim and Ivan, part of the members of the Polycule, like, cuddling together. That was cute. I was, like, here for that. That was great. <laughs> I love how of a small part like those three characters play in the actual episode, but it is the bulk of Chelsea summary. <laughs> exactly. That is all I really was focused on <laughs> once I saw Priorities. That. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so then Logan's followers attack the camp like the next morning or really early in the morning and um, kind of Take them by surprise. There were, like, warning wards around the camp, but they must have been too close to camp because by the time they went off, the army was, like, all up in their business. And um, they run to the cave. They take out the army with just seven or eight Ace to die. So that was pretty crazy. And um, Loghain tries to break out. He almost murders everyone who went into the cave. And then uh, Nynaeve... Just can't stand that Lan, who she's kind of having a crush on, and all the other people are dying around her when Loghain tried to break out of his cage. Oh no, Lan! And everybody else. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And so she was just screaming, no, no, no. And then suddenly she exploded in white jizz that saved everyone and healed their wounds. Chelsea, please. It's magical jizz. Yeah, sure. <laughs> She's going, everyone's healing. It's yeah. madness. And it, she looks like that healing she becomes, goo. Yeah. She looks like she becomes a being of pure light while she's healing them. And uh relatable. Logan is so surprised that he just stands there slack jawed and he's captured again. And he's then, got a real the fuck look. Yeah. Uh Leandrin, the leader of the red faction, uh, gets everybody to channel their magic through her. And she strips him of his magic, which is called gentling him. Gentling him. <laughs> they gentled his genitals. Yeah. <laughs> We're going to talk about that. 
And um, <laughs> we are. I was so fucking sad when they stripped part of his soul out of him. It was so fucking brutal. So was he. He was crying. Yeah, I was crying. Uh, yeah, so that was fucked up. I feel like they didn't even try to find an alternate path besides just murdering part of his soul. No, because if they had other perspectives like that, many of our complaints wouldn't exist. It's true. But so that's what was happening in that part of the world. Meanwhile, other place in the world, on the plains, by the shadowy mountain, I think. With the Tuatha. That's right. Tuatha Don. Perrin and Egwene are still traveling with the Tuatha Iguan. What is it? Tuatha Don, I believe. Tuatha Don. I believe it's a Tuatha It's a miracle I'm getting any of this. It's a, it's a uh, dinosaur, the Tuatha Don. Yeah, yeah. You could just speak with confidence, and they're all so crazy, it would just fucking work. So, yeah. Mo- so right. Moraine binds Loghain yeah, yeah. with the Fofane, and they were definitely using cocaine when they wrote these names. While they traveled on the plains. Thank you. So we're back with the Makara. No. <laughs> on the steps of the mountain, right? Some of that was accurate. And you might remember <laughs> that the the folk that we are traveling with are tinkerers. very they're tinkerers. They're very culturally unique and expressive with bright colors and a large focus on music and community. Storytelling. They've got a lot of humanities, these humans. That's right. Yeah. That's right. And we like them. That's right. And so they set out. Trusts have not exactly been shared or extended in both directions. The people of the Tuatha, I'm just going to say that for their name, are, uh, they're a very welcoming bunch. And we find out this episode... That they are a pacifist people. That's right. A conglomerate culture of travelers from all over who decide to take up the lifestyle. And we learn that a lot of their kids go on pilgrimages at a certain point to experience the world and can choose to abandon the lifestyle. It's a rumspringa for tinkerers and travelers. That's right. And notably, we get this from the perspective of a wise woman whose name... Is Illa. Is Illa. She's the illest. That's right. She has some sort of magical way she has perceived that Perrin killed his wife with an axe. Yeah. Or she just has, is a complete coincidence that she brings that up and she'll be shocked when she finds out that she has literally seen into his soul with her words. That's right. And we'll touch more on their conversation in a bit. However... She is the one who tells us that they are a peaceful people. And she imparts onto Perrin the idea of cyclical violence, which is a very new concept for a guy who is from a very small village. And that the best revenge is living a peaceful life. That's right. In your face with violence. Yes. And uh, Egwene is just thinking about her guy. Which guy? Her cousin. Her best friend. Are you talking about Rand? Yeah, that's the one. (laughs) But also the new guy, Aram, has got eyes for her. That's right. He's telling her about how youths, when they're 20, are allowed to leave the camp 
to sow their wild oats to see the world and pursue their own interests and then decide to come back after a year if they want to. And he's basically hinting at that because he's into her and he's kind of saying like, I'd leave with you for a while if you wanted me to. We we could just go vibe. (laughs) I know we just met, but if you said you were down, I'd leave my friends, family and culture for you. (laughs) (laughs) It's a good deal. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, elsewhere, but at the same time, Matt and Rand are traveling with their new friend, Thom, who I think is actually just called Tom, but I'm going to call him Thom because it's spelled T-H-O-M. That's how you spell Thomas. It could be short for Thomas with the A-S. I can't keep up with all these weird fantasy names. It could also be short for Tamias. True. (laughs) All right, so these guys are traveling. They've, I believe, stolen some horses. They're looking for a place to stay for the night, and they come across a farm. And they're like, hey, we can just sneak in this barn. Everything will be fine. But then out of the woods comes a man who is the farmer who owns this farm. Hmm. He's drawing on them with his bow. They have a tense conversation where Thom tries to misdirect the farmer. But eventually Rand is like, okay, look, we've been lying. We're really just looking for a place to sleep for the night. And we'll be gone in the morning. We won't cause you any trouble. The farmer's like, oh, okay, honey, uh, what do you think? And then suddenly out of the woods, the farmer's wife and one of his kids are also drawing on the party. And she's like, okay, yeah, you guys can sleep here if you muck out our bar. And you might think all this was possible because of Rand's persuasive abilities. But he's actually just the most bland individual. He was ignorable by the farmer and his family. <laughs> he's like, there's no way that this milk toast motherfucker could cause any harm to our family. He's a milk toast. Yeah. yeah. He's the British. Uh... <laughs> Listen, I'm stealing somebody's joke here, but Rand is so plain that if somebody stole his identity, it would be an improvement. Oh my gosh, yes. He's like the British national food water sandwich thank you perfect way to describe rand (laughs) so anyways they take up the farmer's family for spending a night in the barn rand and matt do the mucking while thom hangs out in his life that's what you call it (laughs) yeah mucking the stables oh Meanwhile, Thom's like, you know what? I can't work. I got to be ready for my next performance. Like, I couldn't possibly do any manual labor. It might throw off my storytelling game. (laughs) Later on, Rand and Thom are having a conversation. And Thom is like, listen, Matt, dude's fucked up. We can't have him. I've seen this happen before. He's got some kind of nasty curse. He's going to do some fucked up shit at some point. And we got to keep our eye on him. We probably got to, like, keep a short leash on him because things would go bad really fast. I've seen this. It happened to my nephew. Yeah. And he tells this really tragic story about what happens to the nephew I won't get into. As if on cue, the next time we see Rand and Matt, Matt is stepping away from the work, saying that he needs to go take a break. He goes out and vomits a black sludge, um, which I believe is a bad sign. And then when he turns around, the one of the farmer's young daughters is there. And we know Matt has a soft spot for kids. He's very protective of his own sisters. And they kind of have this little bonding moment. And Matt talks about his sisters to the little girl. And she says, oh, well, here, take my doll to protect your sisters. She 
always protects me at night and she wants to see the world. So Matt has this really touching moment with her. But unfortunately, later in the evening, Tom wakes it up Rand. They go into the house because he suspects that something bad has happened. And he and had just woken up from a dream where he had seen some bad omens. Some dragon omens. Rand had. Yep. Rand dragon. <laughs> yes, Randy dragon. Yes. So Tom and Rand set out from the barn and see that someone has been slaughtering the family of the farmer. They go inside. Yeah, real, real whoopsie. Real oof moment. They go inside and they see Matt and Tom's like, see, I fucking told you. Matt is like looking up and says to the shadows, the darkness, I see you there. And suddenly the fade, the fucking horrible fang mouthed motherfucker. He's just mad because he doesn't have a face. The fade is mad? Yeah. He's lashing out. That's fucked up. Well, yeah. I mean, he's evil, so he doesn't get a nose. <laughs> <laughs> Well-established tradition. Yeah. Anyways, they attack the fade, but it's too late. They see that the whole family has been slaughtered, and they begin to flee the farm, unfortunately leaving behind the doll that was for Matt's sisters. And Tom is actually holding the fade back while Rand and Matt escape. So that's the sad, sorry fate of our characters. I mean, Perrin and Egwene had a pretty good time. Yeah, actually, that's true. Anyways, that's, yeah, that's what happened this episode. So we can probably move into the delve. Welcome to the Delve, where we venture deep into the themes, scenes, and lore of the Wheel of Time. So, I have a question to start us out with. Terrifying. (laughs) In the setting of this show, why is it considered that women won't misuse magic while men, like, are incapable of channeling the one source, or what is it? The one power without going insane. What is the Dark One? Ah. <laughs> is this the Je- your Jeopardy answer? That's right. Because we know that long ago, the Dark One corrupted men's magic. We learned that in this episode. But That's is, what I mean when I say we know. Is that true? Because that's something that happened potentially thousands of years in the past. And basically at this point, that's like myth or legend. We don't know if that's what really happened or not. I mean, the Aes Sedai certainly believe and enforce this worldview. And unfortunately, Loghain, the character that we more or less, like we we were introduced to him very briefly in the last episode. We get to know him a little bit more here. And the voices that speak to him through this corrupted magic are basically saying, hey, kill everybody. Don't let anyone join you or stand in your way. Just slaughter everything. Usually a sign of evil. Mm-hmm. Not always, I guess. Maybe always. Well, the Aes Sedai are lore keepers and people of knowledge and learning, but they are continuing a legacy of people who hold power, and so they might be skewing the history in their favor. That's right. We learned this episode that Aes Sedai in the old tongue means uh, like servant of the world. Servant of all, yes. That's right, servant of all. 
What they really mean is military government that in yeah. the totalitarian dictatorship that makes all the rules. That's right. And uh, I thought that was a neat bit of lore because they're supposed to be servants, but they are also the enforcers, right? Yes. That seems to be something to do with the different colored <clears throat> branches of their robes or outfits that they wear. Right. And it's a bit of the issue I've had with them in the last couple of episodes, because I I mentioned that they just go around enforcing their will on people with violence. So they're like adventurers. <clears throat> right. But in this one, we find out that they're supposed to be doing it for the benefit of the ones that they're hurting, right? I mean, people in positions of authority who exact violence to maintain their own power usually say that they're doing it for the benefit of all. That's right. And I was thinking about how the Aes Sedai are primarily motivated by fear. That's why they do what they do, right? Because they were losing their own power. They were set up in response to the dragon who was trying to undo the world and have now been operating for a thousand generations to prevent that destruction from happening again and anytime they see a man with magic, they're scared of him and they gentle him or kill him. Yes. In this episode, we find out that the Red Cloaks can kill without trial if a man has magic under certain circumstances. Yes. They I think it was more that they were saying like, oh, it's okay to protect ourselves. Like, we're not supposed to kill him. We're supposed to bring him to trial. But if he gets out of line and we have to defend ourselves, you know, uh, stand your ground. Yeah. And also the process of gentling is them. Not gentle. No. Stripping someone's ability to tap into the one power, which is basically stripping them of a part of who they are and basically their connection to something greater. So kind of cutting them off from a part of themselves, like their soul. And again, like the evidence we have with Loghain is that the voices that were speaking to him through the weave or whatever were not benevolent. No. no. But he did have what I would say were potentially more benevolent goals. He saw himself not as a destroyer of the world, but as a repairer of a broken world. That's right. He said the dragon tried to destroy the world last time, but what the Aes Sedai like to ignore is that he has just as much a chance to fix the world as he does to break it. And of course, those in power rarely want to quote-unquote fix the world, because from their perspective, that would mean giving up their power. Yes. They don't want to give up their power to somebody who would change things to a point where, you know they wouldn't have as much say. So they're not about to let that happen. Keen listeners who pay attention to the news may agree with me when I say that people in power often would rather keep the world the way it is rather than create equity for yes. others. Right. And uh, I think this show is reflecting that the Aes Sedai have a lot of issues. They're really disorganized on what it means to help the world in this episode. A lot of them are, I would say, mansplaining, but, <laughs> you know, 
they're aggressively reminding each other what they feel justice and correct conduct is. Because apparently it's not clear. Well, and we also get a very clear indication that the Aes Sedai are not of a single mind about how to go about keeping their own power. Exactly. And some are more benevolent and some are more dictatorial. Yeah. Fascist. Yeah. So Loghain's army is made up of multiple genders. We saw people of all different types who were trying to save him when they showed up at the Aes Sedai camp. And also, it seems like he's brought together uh, different classes, too. Yeah. And he's like, anybody has a place at my side and I want to bind the world. Like, he meant, re like, repair it, like Jamie said earlier. So he has good intentions, but he does hear these voices that are telling him to just kill people, but he does resist that. Yeah. That's true. And when he says that anybody has a place by his side, he says even his enemies, and he heals a wounded soldier that was just trying to kill him. Yeah. And then the guy kind of is one of the captains of his army trying to save him later, we see. Yeah, he went from being a guy who was, who Loghain was like raiding his castle. This guy tried to kill him. And then later on, he was like one of his most fanatical followers. Yeah. So Loghain's talking a good game is all I'm saying. Yeah. I think he does have good intentions, but we just saw him stripped of his connection to this miraculous source. Yeah, I mean, it's not hard to believe that Loghain might have had the potential to be hugely beneficial to people in the right context. Who's to say he didn't have the right to be in power more than the Aes Sedai, any more or less? It's true. His philosophy reminded me a little bit of the Tuatha's leaf philosophy. Except without the pacifism. Without the pacifism, but the compassion was certainly there. The, the focus on unity. Yes, definitely. He could have easily killed that soldier that he healed. It's true. One of my complaints with the Aes Sedai has been that they are they play with their hand very close to their chest. They are not trusting of anyone but each other and their warders. And not even each other, really. Not even each other, episode. really. And uh, the dragon is, uh, or what is his name? Uh, Loghain. Loghain. He's just out there with everything. I mean, he's a man of the people. You, you know I'm going to take the side of the man of the people. Yeah. So do you guys mind if I... Share a bit of lore from the books. Sure. That's good. Okay, so we get that uh, lore from the show about the nature of magic and how the Dark One in the past corrupted men's connection to the One Power, and that's why they go insane, which really seems to me like, like a dominant narrative and a cultural bias to me. We do get to see that there are beings talking to Loghain through the magic. Yeah. And that's not a part of a psychosis or anything. They think, no. They think men go insane, but actually I happen to know that there is a figure who talks to people. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, the show seems to be At implying least. that. Yeah. At least one. The Dark One, it didn't corrupt the connection. He can connect to people through the one power. He's kind of part of He's it. He's exploiting the connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
That was kind of the impression I got from the episode. He dipped his taint into it. <laughs> he tainted it. Yeah, that's, that's what he, that means. He just mm-hmm. kind of like has a preference for male channelers. And yeah. um, if there was a different culture around this, the Aesidae could easily incorporate men into their ranks and just teach them how to block out that influence from their mind and have mental discipline around it. And they just don't do that because then they'd have to share power. Yeah. You were mentioning the perception of incorruptible women as well. Yeah. Yeah. That's the idea is like, oh, women can't be corrupted through the channel. And part of that is that somehow in the past, the Dark One gained access to the male energy of the One Power. Male and female energies are different in the way they connect to the One Power so they are actually different sources of power. Well, that's a whole other can of worms. Yeah. So the Dark One doesn't have access to the feminine source of power. Otherwise, he could just as easily corrupt females or women, what have you. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, um, it raises lots of interesting questions for uh, different sexes and genders that might exist in this world. I know. It's, it's a binary. So it's like, you know, there's not a lot of nuance. Fairly reductive. Yeah. It's it. I I wrote in my <laughs> notes that it's a limiting binary and it's very frustrating. <laughs> That's right. But since there's a role reversal, somewhat between the definitely between uh, the genders in this setting, right? right? Women this being is a on matriarchal top, society. This is a man who has power, trying to rise up and fix a lot of things in their society. Yes, and. The women have a ritual and they gather together and they strip him of that power. It felt a lot like a rape scene. It really did. And he was emotionally devastated. And he so was I. It felt very, it was very difficult to watch. I mean, it was a literal exploitation of a group of people's power over another marginalized person. They basically spiritually raped him. Yeah. I mean that it it it's so clear. Like Yeah. So obviously that sucked and we didn't like that. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't like to see that. I was very sad and I was crying. It was it was a very difficult scene. Yeah, it sucked. When when they lift him up with their magic, he instantly starts crying because he knows what's happening. Yeah. And he he's strong enough to withstand two or three of them, but like seven together he can't. And, like, think about all the things he represented, right? Like, you said he was a hero to the people. Yep. He was probably a massive beacon of hope for a lot of people who are oppressed in this setting. Yeah, I mean, like we said, he didn't just have men in his army. He wasn't, like, it's not so binary in the actual content of the story, right? Where, like, oh, it's a man trying to raise up men. He's trying to raise up everybody. He was willing to give himself to repair the world kind of he had people who had different types of bodies all in his army yeah and um he was basically the leader of a resistance movement and it's also possible that Logan might have been corrupted we don't i mean he had a voice in his head whether or not he was going to be able to resist it I mean, maybe we're never going to know, right? He's not even going to have the chance, probably after this point, unless he finds a way to get his power back. But if he does, he will be more susceptible, probably, to 
darker impulses because he has been so violently assaulted by the Ace and I up to this point. He says in this episode, he claims that there were thousands of voices of past dragons yes. that are, have been telling him how to improve this time. And they're just imparting their wisdom. And considering how problematic the dragon has been in the past, maybe when they tell him to kill people, that is them trying to help. Well, it's also possible that it's the Dark One manipulating him. It's we don't true. know for a fact that this is an Avatar situation where he's actually connected to the other dragons or not. He it's might true. be. The Dark One would have the power to make it seem like he was talking yeah. as the different dragons. I'll just tell you guys that. Yeah. Sure. We also get an interesting little bit from Morgrain in this episode where she says the Dark One probably doesn't know who the dragon is either. He's just out there like trying to get influence anywhere he can because he we know that the Dark One is looking for the four people from the town, the Egwene, Perrin, Rand, and Matt. Yeah. To try to see which of them might be the dragon. He's possibly talking to Lorraine. He doesn't know for sure who the reincarnation of the dragon is either, if Moraine is correct about that. And I don't think he does. He appears to all of them in their dreams. Yeah. In people's dreams in this setting, they have like a connection to the one source and it's easier for him to contact people through dreams. Definitely. The other thing about the dragon, which I think is interesting, is we don't know that the dragon has been influential across thousands of reincarnations. We've only heard about one dragon so far. Yeah. And there's really no reason to assume the dragon will be that influential on the world again. I mean, I think that in the cosmology of the show, or of the setting at least there is this belief that time is cyclical right. and that people who are significant in the past will be reborn and have greater power in the future or the same power to influence world events so that's problematic because what if you're like a really poor peasant that just lives in a really shitty impoverished town let's say your name is matt is your existence always that the idea of the wheel would not be hopeful for someone like that so the dragon would be an escape because the dragon's goal last time was to stop that cyclical existence right yeah so the wheel if it is just the people in power always get put back in that system of power by the wheel it would be in the benefit of everyone who is living living a less fortunate existence to undo that Note any parallels to the real world, listeners? Yes. Yeah, and in the last episode we covered, that's what Dana, the barkeep, uh, was talking about. Like Dana, dark friend. Yeah, she wanted to uh, doesn't stop sound right. that <laughs> cycle and have like kind of hit the reset button and like break apart those hierarchies. Just saying, for my friends out there who love their FromSoft games, the story of the Dark Souls. Nice. Are you going to relight the flame and keep the cycle going one more time? Or are you going to snuff it out and let something new happen? Good or bad, who knows, but it's going to be new. Mm -hmm. And for my Gurren Lagann fans up there, you don't want it to be a wheel. You want it to be a drill. So every time it turns, you progress a little bit. <laughs> nice. Nice. Yeah. 
So this is definitely like a cultural bias about gender roles. I'd say so. <laughs> that favors women over men and helps maintain women's power in the society. I believe I said in a recent episode, feminism is when women are the ones ruling the totalitarian dictatorship. Yeah. Yeah. That reminds me, I wanted to mention, and it relates to what you're saying, the Aes Sedai are, in addition to being like physically powerful with their magic, and they have the government power, they're rich as all hell. Yes. They, they live in a literal ivory tower. They live in an ivory tower. They've got so much jewelry, the nicest clothes, yeah, all these tents, all these employees, and nice food. We've seen towns where they're like, now that the mine is drying up, the money's going out faster than it's coming in. Yep. And like, just these awful holes in the world. Yeah. It's almost like fantasy is always about something about class, maybe. Some kind of struggle between different classes, if that makes sense. Yes. <laughs> it's all connected, guys. It's just the Aes Sedai are like the fanciest people in the world. And as servants, that's a little surprising. It's why, like, I have a tension with this show, right? Because the four travelers... Whatever, the, our, our kind of main band of four young characters, they all come from this humble background. I want to cheer them on because they're all basically working class heroes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, Egwene is an inheritor of power, but she is also from kind of these lower rungs of society and she's looking for opportunities and like having this hard time deciding between pursuing this power or having a life where she'd be happier with Rand. That's right. And, you know, the focus early on was on Egwene having this major power source. And Moraine does mention it again in this episode in the Aes Sedai camp to Lan. But then the first person we see really using extreme raw power is Nynaeve. But she's not one of the four. There's actually five potentials. Isn't the Nev one of them? Yes. Huh. It's kind of a bit of subterfuge, storytelling subterfuge that they kept the focusing kind. on the four. But there were a few times that Moraine mentioned there were five. Yeah. And um, Nynaeve like, has this huge burst of energy, like I said, where she jizzes all over everybody <laughs> and heals them. You know. That's how it works. This episode did a great job of humanizing mm, Moraine. Moraine and her companion Lan. Lan, which they were severely lacking the last couple of episodes. They had a bath together in the first episode, Jack. I mean, obviously that was enjoyable. Dude, <laughs> you're right. They got a lot more personality here. This episode, Moraine shows like weariness combined with compassion she talks a lot more about like her drive and a lot of the things she's struggling with that she's she's grappling with the idea that they lost the four yes quarter dragons. She seems to be somebody who has always been successful and she is facing failure for the first time and she is deciding whether or not that is going to define her or not and what kind of person she's going to be 
after this experience. And that's wonderful. And she's like, she's having that great moment with her warder, Lan, and just seeing that relationship. She's like, I lost the four. He, he says, no, I lost the four. And she said, your losses are my losses, right? Well, failures, but that word is a little harsher for us Americans. And, uh... Yeah. Americans love to fail. <laughs> We're always failing upward. I remember Vietnam. Anyway. Oh, boy. Uh... I thought that was a wonderful scene. And this show does such interesting things because up until this point, Moraine to me was not even like a person, right? Yes, we know your stance on yes. uh, Ace and I humanity. But this time, this episode, Moraine became likable for me. Well, the last two episodes were more interesting. And I got to tell you, that's been as they've been deviating farther and farther from the book. Yeah. So she's getting a lot better, better, she and Lan, and some of the other Aes Sedai are interesting, but a lot of them are still kind of their elitist fascist selves. Except for the polycule one. Yes, except she's cool. She's really cool, She actually. is a comrade. That's right. But the thing is, the thing about this episode that's interesting to me is when everyone was coming in to kill Loghain, and... He explodes these two battle axes and the shrapnel wounds everybody. I was like, heck yeah, he's going to get out of this. Even though a lot of characters we've been made to like this episode are dying as a result. Yeah. Right? And I was like, well, good thing he's getting away, right? <laughs> and uh, when the tables are turned by Nenev, like, I felt kind of bad about that because i'm like well you're saving these people but you're you are exchanging his life for theirs in a way yes although he kind of is just standing there watching he is shocked at how powerful nenev is i think i, I think yeah. that he has kind of put himself in a position where he has become a little bit arrogant with his power which yeah. which will happen right and when he sees Nenev's power, he doesn't even make a run for it. Like, he had an opportunity when he wounded everybody that he could have possibly gotten away. He doesn't even try. He is watching, kind of in awe, of this brilliant flash of white light that comes from Nenev. And the way that she just heals everybody else in the room that he just shrapneled. It's kind of like seeing a god before you. Yeah. Because he probably thought he was the one with the greatest power. Yeah. And then he sees a level of power that puts him... To shame. To shame, yeah. So I don't think it's necessarily arrogance as much as he's very confident because his abilities have shown they are... Sure. ...strong a number of times. He's strong enough that the Ace and I think he's a threat. It's true. And he's really religious. Or not religious as much as he... Ha he Believes in sanctity. He thinks of himself more as spiritual. Yeah, well, he feels the sanctity of things. Like his own power, the voices that talk to him, that he, he prescribes a lot of spiritual value to them. And the Aesodier Moraine is saying to him, like, you think you're strong? Well, your power is nothing but, like, the prick of a candlelight compared to the sun. Right. And when... Nenev is 
just jizzing everywhere. He sees her power and is just like, that's the sun. Yeah. And it seems like he is moved spiritually, like you were saying, in awe. Kind of grieving, like, oh, maybe I'm not the one. It's true. So maybe uh, it probably definitely is affecting his ego with the, like, she's probably way stronger than I am. But I think there's some reverence there as well. I think there was, yeah. Which I think neat. so, absolutely, yeah. Like I said, I think he's kind of in awe of her. He's definitely one of the best characters so far. He suffered so many losses in that moment. Yeah, it's true. Right, like right when he sees her, and right afterward, and mm-hmm. like all of his followers are being slaughtered outside when they were trying to save him. And the thing is, and he seems to care about his army. Yeah, yeah. And one thing, in addition. We we heard his whole speech about anyone is welcome by my side, even my enemies, right? When he when we first see him, he is by himself. Yes. And he is captured. And despite being captured by the enemy, which could be a sign of weakness because his entire persona is built around him being the powerful chosen one, which is compromised by him getting captured, his army still comes to save him. We also find out that the Aesidae took him in his sleep. The only way that they had a chance to get him was under, you know, cover of night, basically. Like, it was basically a surprise attack mm-hmm. where they had to have, I think, at least two of them, right? Like, take him down while he was asleep and his power was at its weakest point. Yeah, and they always, to bind his magic so that he couldn't escape after that while they were taking him into custody, they always had to have two of the Aesidae at any given moment working to shield him from his magic. So one more thing I wanted to touch on. The way of the leaf. My favorite way. Yes. It is the compassionate pacifist philosophy that the Tuatha Don live their lives by. Yes. And it, in the real world, I would say resembles Zen or Buddhism. Yeah. Just, we were all observing that. Yeah. Can you describe that similarity? Yeah. A lot of what they were mentioning had to do with cyclical violence, which is something we had been mentioning in previous episodes. They finally address it in the show. And it's something that comes up a lot in this story. Yeah. Illa talks about her daughter who was killed uh, mercilessly and needlessly And how when she had the urge for revenge, instead she chose to let go of that anger and live her own life in a way that would honor her daughter and make the world a better place for when she reincarnates. Yes. Which is awesome. She said the best revenge is... uh, To live a good life. To violence is peace. The best revenge against death is life. That's right. And there's a quote, I don't remember who it's by, but uh, I know Mr. Rogers liked it a lot. <laughs> That's yeah. kind of similar. It was, uh, the one thing evil cannot stand is forgiveness, right? And uh, oh, interesting. And this reminded me so much of that, because violence and peace, and then the best revenge for death is life, that, that feels so applicable to that. Yeah. And as we know, this show runs off of Christian morality. So, which Mr. Rogers did too. So there's some Venn diagram overlap there. But uh, 
I thought, what a wonderful philosophy the way of the leaf is. Because they say, uh, we never use violence. We don't have weapons. And uh, when uh, one parent is like, what happens when you're attacked? Or maybe Egwene asks. They say, uh, we try to run if we can. And if we can't, we just try to weather the storm, right? And they're like, okay, but what if you're being killed? And they, they say something about how when the leaf falls and it decays, it, it nourishes the tree and more leaves will come along, right? Ilya is more concerned with what she can affect. And she says that if she can teach two people the way of peace, then maybe they can teach two people. It's a spiritual pyramid scheme, hmm. but like for good. Now, here's the thing about trying to stick to strict Christian morality in a setting where you have established violence is okay because the darkness is an objectively evil force. Now, are we talking about the real world or the wheel of time? The wheel of time. Okay. Because I, I've had the same issues with trying to make fantasy settings or like trying to make characters or role play in video games. I'm like, yeah, I want to play like the good Christian paladin character. I'm like, but my character's entire livelihood is being good at violence for reasons they feel is good, but still, right? Yeah. And in this setting, there are creatures like the Fade, which in this episode we see kill a family just for being nearby yep. some of the potential dragon reincarnates. And like the Trollocs, who kill each other just if it's convenient. Yeah. And so there are evil forces that the way of the leaf will not work against. Right. And their philosophy is that it doesn't matter if they die because more will sprout up later. Well, and also with the cyclical view of spirituality, they are less concerned with what happens to them in this life because they know that they will come back in another life and will have the opportunity to live in the more peaceful world that they sowed the seeds for in this life. And they think it's more important not to sacrifice their values than to protect their lives. It's true. I was just wondering, like, the way of the leaf is a great philosophy for a real world where, you know, morality is a lot more gray, like we mentioned in the last episode. They say that, like, uh, the only way that we can stop the cycle of violence is if everyone agrees to stop it. Right. right? Yes. And she said, but that's going to take time. She's also pragmatic. It's true. But like, I don't think that fits the setting. Because there are those evil forces, there's a dark one who is like an ethereal being guiding supernatural creatures of violence. Who may or may not be telling people to just commit murder whenever they can. It is possible in this setting, which is described in the book, but not in the show, that it is possible to defeat the dark one for a time and like keep him at bay but the wheel will turn back again to another time when the dark one will come back it's kind of like what is it rosra and mazra or whatever rosra, no i'm sorry uh what are the characters of light and dark in the avatar setting oh uh rava and vatu right it's kind of like them yeah 
Or so, darkness from the movie Legend also. Yeah, it hasn't been well described in the show so far, but in the books, that's kind of what it's like a little bit. Okay. I don't know if that helps like evolve your thought process there, but... Uh, it doesn't exactly, because I don't know how you defeat the Dark One. From what facts and logic, it's Jesus. The, it's the dragon reborn follows the teachings of the Ace Sedai. They can be used to defeat the Dark One. That's certainly the dominant narrative. So by keeping secrets, prosecuting those who could shake the balance, and uh, I guess having sex with your uh, with your sure. underlings. Okay, with your employees? With your employees? Yeah, it's not... Oh, God. They justify the hell out of this episode. Like, yeah. oh, no, no, no. The bond we have is deeper than a husband and a wife or a parent and a child. It's like, uh-huh. So sure, buddy. I liked what you said about the Aes Sedai, Jamie. That was like... uh, It was something about, like, they are trying to be good more than a lot of other people in the setting or something like that. So... You'll give them a pass for their attempt. <laughs> I mean, maybe not a pass. Lines. Not yeah. a pass. But I, I'll give them credit for trying to do what they think is good, but yeah, this is a setting that is certainly a lot more morally gray than its source material of the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, but uh, I do understand why they would be upset with the Aes Sedai. Sure. Loghain's people. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it's complicated when we apply, you know, what we do here is applying fantasy morality and laws and ideas to our real world in some ways. Um, pacifism is a philosophy that I understand and respect and is also one that is sometimes, unfortunately, can be a way for people to kind of give over their power, right? Because if somebody is going to commit violent acts against say in this case like the Tuatha Don they're going in in the worldview of the show they're going to come back in another life and get the chance to live in a hopefully a more peaceful world yeah in our real world we don't have the certitude about that I've seen pacifist ideologies perpetuated in other media like the walking dead in a different way where it's like you only use non-lethal force and only to defend yourself. Sure. From harm. And we know that there's members of the Tuatha Don who have been warriors. We find out in this episode. And not all of their youth return, but most do. Yeah. Well, but also, like, they have current members who were... Warriors. Warriors. Hired killers. Hired killers. And they have chosen to reform their lives. Yeah. That was a fantastic part of the episode where... Perrin is saying, that woman over there does not look very gentle, right? And yeah. she's saying, she was a hired killer. Sometimes those of us who deal in violence are able to better appreciate pacifism, right? Yeah. And I thought that was cool. Yeah. Because a lot of times, I think everyone can relate to, you've been told a lesson, right? Like, don't speed while you're driving, for example. Until you get in an accident, you won't see the value of that lesson quite as much yeah. as when you've done it. Yeah. Sometimes you have to fail the lesson to see the value in it. And that seems to be a recurring theme throughout the show. Yes. That right. Sometimes, I mean, I said it earlier with Moraine. She had to fail to see that she can be more than just an Aes Sedai agent 
who does everything the way that she has thought it should be done for her whole life. Yeah, yeah I mean, she was willing to talk to Loghain and yeah. ask him questions about his experience and why he thinks he's a dragon reborn and kind of interview him without just automatically passing judgment and taking her sister's word for it. That's a great point, because up to that point, they had never even talked to Loghain. They, again, put him into basically stasis in his sleep. Yeah. He never even had the opportunity to make a case to them. They are not even willing to listen for the most part. Only Moraine wants to even have that opportunity. And in the conversation between just Moraine and Loghain, they are both being fairly reasonable with each other and it's, willing to hear each other out. It's true. They're peacefully d debating, basically, yeah. his status and what he might represent. Yeah, she's not, like, holding him at magic point, saying, like, tell me the answers I want, because that wouldn't be an effective way to find anything out. She said, like, we're only going to have a few minutes to talk. I want to ask you something. Because yeah. she knows that the other Aes Sedai won't even entertain what he has to say. And the issue with the Aes Sedai, like I said, they're driven by fear. That's their whole, that's Love the whole you. reason they exist. And they study the past really intensely, or at least the blue cloaks do. And the thing about that is the Aes Sedai are learning the past and trying to oppress possible threats. But they do not seem to be trying to improve upon any systems. Like we said, they're scared of losing their power. They, they want to keep things the way they are with them in charge. And if anything, they want to make the world more like it is right now with them having more of the power. And, you know, it's interesting. I just I'll make one last connection that was happened in this episode before we move on. Tom, the Gleeman talks about this very thing, right? He says in this episode, two interesting things. One, that Gleeman are people who give themselves a silly name so that people won't take them seriously and that they have the upper hand in any interaction with them. And two, that people who study history are the most dangerous people. Knowledge is power, basically. Exactly. Because they know how to manipulate things and to exploit reality to their benefit. And to, again, gain the upper hand against their enemies. The Gleeman are an interesting microcosm of power in this world where they kind of use this air of mystery, just like the Aes Sedai do, to kind of keep people guessing. But they are kind of the court jesters versus the Aes Sedai queens who are ruling everything. The Gleeman are out there kind of being amongst the people, but maybe doing some... Shady stuff sometimes. Yeah, they pass into the radar of the Aes Sedai by having this kind of facade of being like a jester or, or somebody who shouldn't be taken too seriously. But they really do know more than they let on. And like he, it, he did seem to insinuate that like there's something more to their order than just telling stories. Exactly. Because who are they telling the stories to? The people. The common people. The Gleeman go out and they keep track of history. They are doing a, probably an oral tradition of history. Mm -hmm. That's hot. <laughs> <laughs> and they are spreading it to the people. They are telling stories to common people about 
what really happened in the past. They're like investigative journalists, right? Yeah. They're carrying news and carrying information and contextualizing it for common folk who are probably going to someday see like, oh, why are the Aes Sedai in charge? It's so that the common people aren't just fed propaganda by the people in power. They have another source of information. Exactly. Yeah. So all I'm saying is, at the end of the day, what this all wraps up back around to in this perfect little bow is class struggle. It's true. That's right. And if I had my choice, if I could be an Aes Sedai or a Gleeman, I'd be a Gleeman. Yeah, it seems pretty good. I'd be a dragon. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably the best choice. Hell yeah. yeah. Unless the Ace and I come to kill you or take control of you. Fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, this ran a little long. Why don't we head into our final thoughts? Okay. So we are halfway through the Wheel of Time. What are our thoughts for where we're at right now with the show? I just noticed a little bit of Celtic influence in this episode. Hmm. Well, obviously, there's the Tuathodon. And the Gleeman. That's right. And the Gleeman. And the thing about the Tuathodon, they're the pacifist, compassion people, like free, loving. That's not what the Tuathodon really represent in my mind, in my research. No, I don't think that they are representing the Celtic gods, necessarily. I don't know what Tuatha really means. Uh, it's the people of something. Let me look it up. <laughs> the people of Dan, in the case of the Tuatha Dan. Yes. So they're called the Tuatha Dan. The Celtic gods are called the Tuatha de Dan Nin. All they did was take an en off the end. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna blow your mind here. This is, this is gonna be wild. So a lot of time, fantasy authors steal names from things. <laughs> yeah, you're right. <laughs> and I don't know that they always understand the things that they're stealing the name of. It's just like if I made Zeus the god of like internet cafes and consent culture, it just doesn't seem right. I like that Zeus though. Of course you do. Everyone likes that <laughs> Zeus. Can we worship that Zeus? That Zeus. Oh, I'm a follower of Zeus. People are like, uh, no, 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 no. This other Zeus. Hipster Zeus. Nice. So, um, the Tuatha Day were, it basically translates to Tribe of the Gods. <laughs> Classic. And the Tuatha de Danann means the folk of the goddess Danu, uh, who's like the earth goddess. That I makes see. Sense. So it's like the people of earth. So perhaps the leaf metaphor was a little closer tied to Celtic mythology, uh, mythology and Maybe Druidism, just because mm -hmm. of the ties to leaves, trees, sacred trees. Also, um, in even in the modern day, there is a strong tradition of travelers in Ireland. And what I'm talking about are people who often might be associated with, like, Romani. Yes. Like, that's, a, that's still a very active culture in Ireland to this day. It's true. So I think that the characters are kind of representing that. Exactly, yeah. I think so, too. But uh, I was just having a conversation with someone about 
I work in a spiritual store, someone who reveres Celtic mythology, about how one of the ideals of Celtic mythology is being afraid of everything in Celtic <laughs> mythology. Yes. Which is why I just think it's that's like the foremost thing in my head when I think about it. So it's funny seeing these pacifist artists. The most yeah. important thing to realize about Celtic mythology is that everything is trying to kill you all the time. That's right. We're pacifists because we don't stand a chance. <laughs> it's like living in Australia. My Everything God. around you can kill you. Crikey. Uh, <laughs> the other thing was, of course, the gleeman. We revere nature because we fear nature. Yeah. Speaking of fearing your religion, the gleeman. Yes. Right? Or your spirits, the gleeman. Uh, <laughs> uh, the idea that you give scary things nice names to appease them right. or to misdirect. Yeah. Like the fairy, the right. fair folk mean like, oh, so beautiful they are, so they don't kill your ass. Exactly. You call them pretty. And uh It disarms them. Yeah. And so gleemen who declare themselves as dangerous because of their knowledge give themselves an underwhelming name because presentation is really important. Yeah. And they don't want to just be persecuted by the ace to die. They want to be able to keep doing what they're doing. So. Yes. I guess the rule of first impressions is what they're acting upon. It's good to set a good first impression. Yes. Which I think comes back to our final thoughts here, because my first impression of this show was that mm, it was all right. I wasn't super hooked. Now things are starting to get pretty interesting. We're starting to get deeper into the story, like Chelsea said, as it's diverting more from the source material. Yeah. It seems like it's becoming a little more interesting. The characters and their motivations are feeling more complicated. I was I just complaining at the beginning of us watching the episode that it's not very inclusive of different types of like romantic relationships or stories. And then we got to see some queer characters. Yeah, so. and we got to see the thruple Chelsea's been dying for. Yeah. That's right. We've got pretty solidly our toes in the queer community. And so when we see a nice loving relationship, we're like, oh, that's nice. But when it's a queer relationship, there's just that little extra sparkle of happiness. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you, Jack. Yes. Just kicks it up a notch. It's true. And so we're like, oh, that's cool that, that they're all getting along. Oh, my God, they're gay. <laughs> yes! yes! They've ascended. <laughs> <laughs> it's beautiful. Yeah, so... This, of the four episodes we've seen, this is definitely the crown jewel. The first three episodes put stress level 99%. And this one, I like when they go to the Dark Soul City in episode two. I was starting was to cool. feel like my bandwidth was seriously becoming stressed for my patience with the show. And then with this episode, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm listening. <laughs> they did a great job. They did a great job. The bland morality and the one-dimensional characters all were resolved, I feel like. Not per not entirely. No. But they were acknowledged. You know what? We've been seeing less of Rand. <laughs> so oh, I, I kind of have a soft spot for Rand. I mean, what's not to like? <laughs> or like. He's so bland. You could describe any personality to him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. But I mean, he is the working folk. I like that about him. He's a hot guy, and so is Matt. Is he? And 
He's cute. Just, he could be. He's got an Olander cute. Or he could not be. Yeah. <laughs> he's, he's the most powerful because he's the most bland, so he has the most potential. Wait, I don't I don't want to skip past Jack associating cuteness with his own bloodline. <laughs> he looks like someone I could be related to. Sure, okay. sure. Um I keep wanting he and Matt to get together. Yeah. <laughs> of course you do. I keep shipping them in my mind. I went earlier when you said that they tracks. were when you said they were mucking, I was imagining Tom <laughs> opening the barn door and them just being naked, covered in mud, <laughs> like in wrestling positions. He's like, What the fuck are you two doing? Mucking. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, I'll leave you to it. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> You answered my question. It's like the classic, like, queer thing. Oh, we were just working out. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, yeah, Rand, uh... I love Bland. I just want to say, not everybody has to be in a relationship. Like, we love friendships, right? Oh, my God. I love friendships so much. But it just seems like... There's nothing I love more than friends. They have such... Maybe almost nothing I love more than friends. Yes. It just seems like they have so much compassion and tenderness for one another i could really see it leaning that way yeah <laughs> i mean i'm sure you and like a bunch of fan forums yeah that's right and uh rand bland that's his name yes. is his name rand his that's name that rand. close to bland yes it is my goodness <laughs> uh i love egg the thing about him is he's supposed to be like the inherently innocent character i think I think so. Like, Like, untarnished. He wants a simple life. Yeah. God, me too. And I think that's all great. It's just not put forward very vibrantly. And the thing that makes him more likable than a complete blank slate is I think the actor is really good. I do too. In addition to him being cute, he... His his acting of this bland character gives it a better flavor. I agree. Also, he has a motivation. His motivation is just to live simply. And I like that. His yeah. his goal in life is to kind of settle down on a farm. And have a family with the Gwen. Yeah. Which and, is and I think that's a respectable thing because it feels like it does drive the character's actions. And a character like that better fits the morality of the show, which is clearly what they're setting up. Yeah. Like, he is a person who fits the morals they would like to be more represented. Uh, but the character, the way he jokes around with Matt, is is pretty good. Yeah. Matt teases him, and the way the actor, like, makes, makes Rand laugh and stuff, it feels kind of like he's breaking character, yeah. but in a way that m- improves the character. I'm, yeah. I, the two actors are great. I can't wait to enjoy their relationship over... This season, all the way to the end, and then many, many seasons in the future. (laughs) God damn it! (laughs) All right, well, on that note, we'd like to thank you for joining us on another episode of Swords and Satire. If you enjoyed the show, maybe consider following us on social media, at Swords and Satire, on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, so you can keep up with what we're doing, check out some of our memes that we post for every episode, and get in touch with us. Let us know your thoughts about the Wheel of Time. And like we said before, if you have a few gold coins to toss our way and you'd like to support the show, you could head to patreon.com slash swords and satire and join our patron community 
you'd be helping us out, helping us keep the show going, and you'd get some cool perks like voting on movies that we watch and cover, and bonus episodes. That's right. But if you don't have as many gold coins, uh, well, better luck next time the wheel rotates. Yeah. But you can still support the podcast. You can still support Swords and Satire by just telling your friends and family about it. You we don't, love friends. Don't wait till they reincarnate. <laughs> <laughs> Share them the beauty of the show today. <laughs> What's the a better way to enjoy your art than with your community? The song that brings about world peace? Well, maybe it's a Swords and Satire episode. It could be. You never know. Art is meant to be shared. That's right. And don't read too much into the song of world peace that we didn't mention in the episode. That's right. Just tell your friends and family. <laughs> How do you know we haven't already found it? That's right. I mean, it's Faith, right? By George Michael. <laughs> Thank goodness. <laughs> That's the song that will bring about world peace. Yeah, I guess uh, we're running a little late on the world peace, though. Yeah. yeah. We'll get there. All right, well, until next time. Hail Crom!